Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I'm your host, Natalie Pearson. Today, oral histories of everyday Singaporeans are more widely circulated in the nation's mediascape than ever before. At first glance, storytelling in Singapore appears to be diverse and diffuse. But as today's guest suggests, Singapore has become a storytelling state, marketing bite-sized pieces of consumable lives as authentic windows to the private self. The result is the use of personal stories within the neoliberal public sphere, mirroring a growing global phenomenon. To tell this and other stories, I am joined by Dr. Cheng Yen Yuan, an honorary associate at the University of Sydney School of Literature, Art and Media. She has a PhD in theatre and performance studies from the University of Sydney and has published in the journals Studies in Theatre and Performance, Performance Paradigm and the Oral History Review. She is also a dramaturge and performance maker. Nien is currently based in the Intercultural Theatre Institute in Singapore, where she researches their pedagogy and practice. Nien, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Natalie. Your research looks at storytelling in Singapore, but when I hear the words Singapore and story or storytelling, it tends to conjure up this idea of the Singapore story. Can you walk us through the Singapore story? So incidentally, when the Singapore story uh, began to be introduced into Singapore schools, it was 1997, and that was also the year I started going to school. And so I remember learning some key plot lines and events and lessons of the Singapore story as it was told in history lesson. These include, for example, Raffles's landing in 1819. Of course, there was the fall of Singapore in 1942 and then the Japanese occupation, followed by dramatic merger and then separation. So these key events and plot lines are usually followed by some sort of lesson that Singapore is always vulnerable, that we always have to be vigilant against external threat, that we have succeeded despite all the odds that are stacked against us, and that we cannot take the current material comforts that we have attained for granted. So it was told in a very top-down kind of way. Uh, There were key figures that we had to learn about. You know, of course, there was Lee Kuan Yew, there was Go King Sui, there was S. Roger Ratnam. So all of these strong men that have led us to the prosperity that we know today. So that is the Singapore story as it was traditionally told in the classroom. So the Singapore story, when you just introduced it now, you referred to you being in school and, and learning this story. Is this something that all Singaporean school children would be familiar with? They'd know that the highs and the lows, they'd know the key characters of the Singapore story? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we would memorize these events and it was kind of the way things were. As a Singaporean student, you have to do well in exams. And so these events would come up in exams. So we would have to memorize them by heart. But we didn't necessarily take this Singapore story too hard. And so even though, you know, Prime Minister Lee Sin Long has put it before that knowing this history is part of being Singaporean, there is a a gap between the epistemology of knowing and the ontology of being that there still needed to be filled because we weren't necessarily 
understanding how the Singapore story related to our personal lives. What is the relationship then between the Singapore story and this phenomenon that you've identified of Singapore as the storytelling state? Did one bring the other into existence? The storytelling state, as I describe it, so I use it to describe and conceptualize the phenomenon of the proliferation of the life stories of everyday Singaporeans in Singapore's mediascape. So the storytelling state, as I see it, was a kind of a paradigm shift in the communication of the Singapore story. So instead of this top-down perspective that we learn from textbooks, we suddenly see the Singapore story in the bodies, within the bodies and the lives of everyday Singaporeans. So we see the refiguring of history onto Singaporean bodies, and it makes it so much more personal and so much more intimate and so much more relatable to the everyday public. Instead of learning about big men or great men of Singapore history, we are learning about, you know, your grandmother, your friends and your family and how they embody the Singapore story within their own lives. What was it that first drew your attention to this phenomenon of storytelling in Singapore? Was it your own observations? Did you notice things in the MRT advertisements or songs or or YouTube clips? What was it? I think this storytelling state emerged just in the last decade. And I was personally, as a researcher, interested in the oral histories of Singapore. And in Singapore, we have, you know, the Oral History Centre, which is a centre dedicated to the production of quite professionally produced oral histories, long-form interviews of Singaporean. So the interesting thing that I stumbled across when I was researching oral histories in Singapore was that suddenly, instead of these long-form interviews, I suddenly find, when I'm scrolling through Facebook, for example, very short micro-documentaries of lots and lots of Singaporeans you know, clusters of short accounts of Singaporean lives, so what I call bite-sized pieces, right? And this coincided with the 50th anniversary of Singapore's independence. And accompanying this is the storytelling campaigns. I found out about so many campaigns, including the Singapore Memory Project, Singapore Cares, storytelling in uh, Passion Made Possible campaign, And all of these campaigns concentrated on oral histories, but in a very, very different way from what traditionally is understood as oral history. So these stories, of course, they they manifest in virtual spaces like Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and so on. Like I described me scrolling through Facebook as a Singaporean living overseas, I found myself being quite connected to Singapore through Facebook. But at the same time, when I go back to Singapore, and even now, When I visit shopping malls or, like you mentioned, MRT stations, bus stops, you will find either videos of Singaporeans sharing their life story or advertisements calling out for stories. So, for example, the other day, I just came across a poster by the community chess organization Singapore calling out for stories of caregiving. And you are encouraged to submit your story and enter into a kind of a competition or a contest of some sort. So that is very common mechanism of the storytelling state. So we're talking about stories as bite size, and I like this idea of them being consumable. I want to ask two questions. First of all, who's doing the consuming? Is it directed at other Singaporeans or is this for an international audience? And then the second part of the question is to make them consumable, how much sugar is added? Yeah, that's a good question about audiencing. For me, certain campaigns such as the Singapore Memory Project and Skills Future, when they produce 
stories, it's mainly for a local audience. And I will get into why that is later on. If we talk about why the storytelling state has come up over the past 10 years. But with, with campaigns such as Passion Made Possible, which is spearheaded by the Singapore Tourism Board, there's a stories content fund that filmmakers and all sorts of media companies can apply for this grant to record and to document stories of Singaporeans for the Passion Made Possible campaign. And that is in particular a campaign that wants to market Singaporeans as passionate as uh, not, you know, the stereotype of kind of emotionless robots or pragmatic robots that, I don't know, sometimes people have this conception of Singaporeans. But that instead, we are loving, we are caring, we are passionate, we are fiery. So these campaigns are marketed to the international audience as a kind of way to show that you know, you can invest in us or you can visit us. Yeah. So then the second part of that question was about how much sugar is added. And I guess what I'm asking there is about whether these are genuine stories with all the grit of real human life, or if it's storytelling in the sense that it is about fabrication and concealment. Can we apply both interpretations? Are they both genuine and fabrication? Yeah, I think every story, no matter what context it is, is a fabrication in terms of how it is fictive, it is composed and it is curated. So there are no stories that are 100% authentic or 100%, I would say, without any basis on reality. But in terms of the storytelling state, it's not unique to Singapore. It reflects a global phenomenon of storytelling that has emerged with the advent of digital new media. A way of, of telling stories, you know, for example, by the very famous photographer Humans of New York or the NPR podcast, This American Life, you know, a way of packaging human life that emphasizes the power of positivity and of attaining happy endings. And some scholars have argued that this is a very neoliberal kind of phenomenon because it is meant to market the, the possibilities of the power of the individual and how you can change your life as long as you follow these steps instead of critiquing systems, you know, or structures of inequality. So in this way, yes, the storytelling state, like, you know, the global storytelling phenomenon, it thrives in the proximity to the political. For example, it disproportionately features the structurally underprivileged, but at the same time, it doesn't talk about why that is the case. So it doesn't contextualize these accounts. The context is removed. And so the only way that we can perceive of change is through the individual rather than through policies or, or society or structures. Yeah, that, that's a really good segue to my next question, actually, which was about whether we can think of storytelling as effective and what the purpose of storytelling is. So if we're thinking of storytelling as packaging up excerpts from people's lives that have a happy ending in which the individual has autonomy beyond the structures within which they are living, what techniques can Singapore use to make a story more effective? I'm interested here in the question of affect. Effective is an interesting question, Natalie, because effective for whom is also a question that needs to be unpacked. If in terms of the storytelling state, there is a certain effect that they, the state wants to produce through these stories, which is to qualitatively produce a way of being, doing, and feeling Singaporean. 
So in that sense, for these stories to be effective, they cannot be contextualized in the way that we were just talking about it because they need to reproduce the status quo or they need to encourage Singaporeans to feel a certain way or to follow certain heteronormative desires. So there is, in terms of feeling, a normative demand to be happy in the storytelling state because emotions such as anger uh, are deemed unproductive. You know, it leads to a slippery slope of protests of, of violence, of rioting, and all of these ugly feelings, uh, what CNI would conceptualize as. So the storytelling state wants to produce the same effects of, let's say, the fear and the, the kind of feeling of what in Singapore we would call kiasunas, or the fear of missing out on the good life, that has been the engine of Singapore's meritocracy and Singapore's pragmatism since independence, which is you know, the, the kind of being scared of not being able to achieve a certain uh, life goals or that kind of align with capitalistic or market interests. So they want to reproduce that same output, the same outcome, but instead with fluffy, tender, warm feelings of, oh, I want to achieve this life because it can make me happy. So that is the, the effect that most projects in storytelling state want to produce. But at the same time, I must emphasize that the storytelling state is not an entirely top-down phenomenon. It is necessarily a shared project between stakeholders in both state and society. So there have been groups on the ground that capitalize on this proliferation of stories because storytelling is something that is very, it's hard to predict, it's hard to measure, and it's hard to calculate the effects of stories. And so while the state tries very hard to do so, there are many groups on the ground that are taking advantage of the storytelling state to tell stories in a way that is both recognizable as a kind of a oh, positive package of the kind of format, a form of bite-sized pieces that we see today. But at the same time, they tweak the form to include, let's say, structural issues or to include certain emotions that have been frowned upon, such as bitterness, for example, by people who have been disadvantaged in certain ways, like the migrant population in Singapore, or people under the poverty line in Singapore, and how they have this space now to talk about their lives, but also possibly in a way that is slightly less palatable to the storytelling state. Yeah, that is such a good point about how people are using the same format to their advantage to incorporate stories from migrant workers, for example, or to include bitterness and disappointment in the stories. I guess the question I would have then is who are these people who are making these stories, alternative stories using the same Singapore storytelling format? I would like to highlight a case of such a project called Between Two Homes. The website is betweentwohomes.sg. So while most stories in the storytelling state are decontextualized, uh, Between Two Homes actually contextualizes the stories of the people that they interview with the kind of references to structure and to systems. So for example, how unfair it is that the letter that they receive informing them that they have to move or they have to relocate, you know, is only in English and is not translated, is not communicated properly, or of the fact that the grants that they got to move actually is not enough, or the idea that volunteerism or charity is not 
a sustainable solution. So they do contextualize their accounts, but not necessarily in the, the videos of the stories themselves, but in the text. And they are able to do so instead of most storytelling state projects where the media companies helicopter in, uh, interview a person and then helicopter out of their lives. Uh, and kind of produce this very well-curated story, the people behind the project are still with them as I speak, helping them out in the, the new resettlement. You mentioned before audience and the emergence of the storytelling state phenomenon, particularly in the last 10 years or so. Did you want to expand on that about who the storytelling state is aimed at? I would suggest that the first reason for the emergence of the storytelling state is mainly to do with reliving Singapore's past in order to connect everyday Singaporeans to the Singapore story, but instead in a very intimate and personal way. So refiguring history onto bodies, reperforming the National Archive, you know, in a pedagogical exercise of some sort, you know, of identity and belonging. Um, but I suggest that the second reason, uh, which is more important and also more implicit, is actually to do with Singapore's present and future. So examined more closely, campaigns like the Singapore Memory Project are to do with memory and the past, yes, but it's not their only goal. It's not merely to document Singapore's past. Their commission stories closely align, actually, with the state's contemporary issues and interests. So while the audience remains everyday Singaporeans, it's not just a, the purpose is not just to document, you know, it's to, like I mentioned, qualitatively produce certain ways of being, doing and feeling Singaporeans, you know, using the past to create recognizable performances of citizenship for present and future purposes. So I'm interested in whether the Singapore story leaves space for other stories. So I'm thinking in particular of migrant workers who we mentioned earlier, who are so critical to Singapore's functioning and how they fit in? Actually, there have been appropriations of migrant worker stories in recent years into the storytelling state. And in a way that while on the surface, it would seem like we are giving voice to migrant workers in Singapore, it is actually done in a way that hides the structural issues behind the you know, labor practices in Singapore and what the actual problems that migrant workers face. So their stories are included in so far as it is a kind of a credit to them. So yes, we have acknowledged, we are now acknowledging the role that migrant labor has played into the development of Singapore within the Singapore story. That is a new thing. But at the same time, we're not doing it in a way that critically assesses how certain things about Singapore's labor practice should change so as to improve the lives of these migrant workers. Now, is it possible to think about the future of the storytelling state? Do you have any sense of where this is going next? I've been told recently by one of the people who have uh, participated in the storytelling state as a producer of stories that the use of Facebook to disseminate stories is actually not on the decline per se, but it is less fervent as it was, let's say, from 2015 to 2018. And now Instagram is like the new thing, or perhaps even TikTok, which is something I think is an avenue that I would like to explore further. I do not have Instagram, nor do I have TikTok. 
But I think that if I want to pursue research on the future of the storytelling state, I would need to go into that arena. At the same time, the storytelling state is very much still alive. I, I moved back to Singapore four months ago. And like I said, it's not only in virtual spaces, but it is in the physical spaces as you go about your day in Singapore. But at the same time, I think because of the accessibility of how one can disseminate stories, there have been more grassroots campaigns that are not spearheaded by government-linked institutions that are using storytelling, the storytelling state's form. So actually migrant workers, for instance, um, have started their own YouTube channel uh, interviewing themselves and or they organize their own storytelling events. And I think there is a lot of potential for grassroots initiatives such as this in the future of a storytelling state. I think that's an excellent point at which to end. Thank you so much for sharing your research with us, Nian. It's such an interesting topic and we'll have to get you back to talk about the work you're doing with the Intercultural Theatre Institute. But for now, thank you very much for sharing with us your insights into the storytelling state and this idea of performing life histories in Singapore. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Natalie. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our CX Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.